Hello, and welcome to Peach Pot, a Georgia politics podcast. I'm today's host, Megan Payne. On this week's show, I'm giving Kyle a break from the host seat so that he and Luke can talk about some pretty wonky political stuff that they're both, both really interested in. First, we're going to discuss some brewing tension between Governor Kemp and legislative Republicans over Kemp's proposal to enact big spending cuts in the state's budget. Then, John Ossoff joins the Senate race last week, declaring that he would enter the primary and take a shot at David Perdue. He entered that race with a surprising endorsement. And finally, Kyle, do you want to talk a little bit about the Amico interview? So we've had a lot of conversations with candidates recently. So earlier this week, we published an interview that I did with Sarah Riggs Amico. She also is a new, a relatively new entrant into that Senate race with David Perdue. So if you missed that in your feed earlier this week, be sure to refresh those feeds and go check out that conversation. I was particularly interested in the way that she describes her faith and and how it motivates her politics. We got into some good back and forth about that. So if you missed it, go back and take a listen. Yeah, it was a great interview. So in recent weeks, Governor Kemp has begun to tangle with the legislature over his plan to cut state spending. Earlier this summer, Kemp surprised legislators by calling for budget cuts of 4% and 6% in this year's and next year's budgets, respectively. This call for cuts got a cool reception from lawmakers who took the unusual step of scheduling budget hearings in the fall. This week, details are beginning to emerge about the magnitude of cuts state agencies are proposing, which gives us an idea about who will be harmed by these spending reductions. So, Kyle, what's the latest developments in Kemp's proposal to cut the budget, and how did we get here? So like you said in the intro, Megan, Governor Kemp has asked the state agencies to propose budget cuts of 4% in this year's amended budget and 6% in next year's budget. And that was really the beginning of the summer budgeting process that Kemp launched earlier this summer. When Kemp issued the call for these cuts, it was really surprising to lawmakers because they had just recently come out of a legislative session where they had passed a budget that did not have cuts like these. And there was basically no discussion of an economic downturn or a reason to consider cutting the budget in next year's legislative session. Now, Kemp would say that this was something that he campaigned on, and this next year would be the first basically first full legislative session for him coming off that 2018 election in that quick turnaround to the legislative session. So basically where we are is earlier this summer, Kemp proposed these cuts. He asked state agencies to submit budget requests that reflect the cuts that he wanted to see. And then the legislature responded by taking the unusual step of scheduling budget hearings for the fall. And this means that the Appropriations Committee in the House is going to come together. They're going to have hearings outside of regular legislative session. And what they had wanted to do was they had wanted to hear from the heads of state agencies about why we were cutting the budget and what kinds of cuts were on the table. Uh, But Governor Kemp, in sort of the first bit of tension here between him and Republicans in the House, basically prohibited his agency heads from participating in these budget hearings. So the budget hearings are going to go on but they're not going to feature the agency heads who have proposed budget cuts to Governor Kemp. So this is going to make for a really interesting set of hearings in the fall. Georgia Recorder has done a lot of great reporting on this. They're this new outlet um, that is covering really some of the wonky stuff that we like to talk about. Um, And Caleb McMitchin, the 
communications director for the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, he told Georgia Recorder that he expects these hearings are going to be basically a broad overview of the economic conditions and why we're cutting the budget right now. And separately, Georgia Recorder also reported that some of these tensions have cooled. But I think this is the place to really start watching this to see if the fact that these tensions have cooled is really true. How is it okay that Kemp can propose these cuts when the legislators already came up with a budget. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason why this is happening this way is actually Kemp is trying to keep the budget process somewhat how it normally works, which is that the agencies come up with a budget proposal that they give to the governor and then the governor bundles them all together and sends his proposal to the legislature rather than having a lot of crosstalk, you know, between the legislature and the agencies and the agencies and the governor and back and forth and back and forth. He's trying to keep the process streamlined because, you know, it is a little abnormal that he's talking about these cuts uh, in this way and at this time. But as far as how the process goes, if you are going to uh, have a new budget, you know, anytime, this is you know, what Kemp is asking for is how it would work. So the other piece of this is Governor Kemp is proposing cuts to a budget that has already been passed. But basically the way Georgia's budgeting process works is that every legislative session, the state passes two budgets. They pass an amended budget for the prior fiscal year, and then they pass a new budget for the upcoming fiscal year. Now, Georgia's legislative session runs typically from January to April, but the fiscal year starts July 1st of every year. So that's why you take an amended budget and make adjustments to it, because you're gathering as a legislature sort of in the middle of the budget year, and that's the time to make changes. Yeah, and just to really hit it home, like this new budget's not going to be voted on until next legislative session, even though they're having uh, meetings on it now. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. So what do the proposed cuts look like now, Kyle? The cuts that really stand out to me, they kind of come in three big areas. There's cuts to maternal mortality programs. So the Department of Community Health has proposed canceling a half million dollar grant to Morehouse College to study maternal mortality. Morehouse College is one of the more prominent HBCUs in the state. It's also uh, one of the state's primary medical institutions. And they are in the process of studying, of creating a center to study maternal mortality with a specific focus on maternal mortality and race. And this half million dollar grant from the state was a big piece of getting that research center up and going. Other context for that is black women in Georgia are three times as likely to die during or after pregnancy than their white peers. And Georgia has an overall maternal mortality rate that is equal to or actually worse than Uzbekistan's. Um, So these are really key pieces of context as we look towards a budget cut to maternal mortality studies. Another piece of the budget cut is cuts to agricultural services. So the Board of Regents approved a plan that would cut over $9 million to Georgia's agricultural experiment stations and UGA's cooperative extension services. These are basically two programs within the Board of Regents that support the agriculture industry in Georgia. And then another piece of the cuts that's coming from the actual agriculture department is a cut to uh, positions dealing with marketing Georgia agricultural products. And the key piece of context here is that farmers in Georgia are facing the fallout of the president's trade war, and they're also dealing with only now getting aid from Hurricane Michael and the damage that it did in 2018. So a recent report from the University of Georgia found that 
tariffs issued by the president have basically reversed progress in creating a market for Georgia peanut products in China, and that Georgia farmers are facing some of the most precarious financial conditions in over a decade. And part of what's key to this is what has been lost in this trade war has been access to international markets for Georgia farmers. And part of what's being cut in this proposal in within the Board of Regents and within the Agricultural Department are the people who market those products, the people who would be helping to undo the damage from the president's trade war. So this is one that I think is going to weigh heavily on the legislature when they consider it. And then one other piece of these cuts are cuts to state mental health services. Um, so the state mental health department has planned for $56 million in cuts over the next two years. And $44 million of these cuts would go to uh, crisis services in the state and to services that help keep people who have serious behavioral and mental health conditions to keep them housed. So these are very vulnerable people who rely on these services. And the thing that like really sort of stuck out to me across these cuts, but particularly to these mental health services, is that the rationale for these cuts is the worry over a potential economic slowdown, maybe a recession. And Folks may remember in the Great Recession, uh, the state cut spending heavily. They furloughed a lot of state employees, furloughed a lot of teachers. That was like a once-in-a-generation economic crisis. The recession that we're expecting is probably not going to be that, but we're already thinking about preemptively balancing the budget, preemptively planning for a recession, and doing it on the backs of people who are so vulnerable that they rely on the state for mental health services, for crisis services, for their housing. And it will be interesting to see how the governor responds to these proposed budget cuts because it will be quite a remarkable statement on the governor's priorities if these cuts end up becoming law. But again, these are proposed, not set in stone. Well, Kyle, I I, I, I push back because, you know, I don't feel like that's the only reason that they're pushing it. I don't even feel like they talk about the recession as like the forward-facing argument uh, because you know, from the outlets I'm reading and the voices I'm hearing, it seems like, you know, Kemp ran on a couple key priorities that, you know, would actually be government doing things. And the biggest one in my mind was the pay raises for teachers. But I kind of think what's happening here, I think the recession is part of it. But, you know, I I was going to say, I think there's like two and a half reasons this is happening. My half reason is the recession argument. The... Other reasons is, first, like I was just saying, Kemp had all these priorities that he talked about. Like, he had things he actually wanted to do. And I think that he came into office and realized that, oh, all the things I want to do cost money, and we don't have any more money. And then the other part of it is that because Kemp is a Republican, he automatically thinks taxes are bad and that cuts are good, and that to accomplish his priorities that he set out and keep the promises that he's made, he thinks, you know, he knows that he has to get more money to do those things, and because of the ideology he has, the only way that he can get the money to do the things he said he wants to do is to cut. <laughs> and I, I honestly think that's why we're here. I think the recession thing is an argument being made by more experienced people uh, to try to justify something that is kind of unjustifiable in the current Georgian climate that we're in. So Luke, you you just set me up perfectly for the next question. Why are tax cuts relevant here? And what is this business about cutting income tax next year? 
Yeah, so I think what's happening here is that as we were talking about, like, after the recession, Georgia did a bunch of, like, honestly necessary things. Like, we, you know, like all, I mean, the whole world had a lot of economic problems, and we really had to cut back to keep our balance budget requirements and meet those requirements. And then after the recession had waned, we started to increase our spending again, and Governor Deal did a lot of work to... uh boost the rainy day fund and i think you know he should be commended for that and that we are in a pretty good shape for a recession but we really did not at all return to like a full robust non-austerity version of georgia and we're already still kind of there we're kind of in a place where the georgian government is not spending a whole bunch of money and there's a lot of places where we could be spending a lot more money and be doing a lot more good and so i think it's really strange that you know kemp is if if the true reason behind this is that kemp thinks that there's a recession in the next you know five years and that we need to set georgia up to be fiscally conservative so that if a recession comes we don't like see these horrible cuts happening and that we basically can maintain i think that would have required georgia like really reshaping itself after the recession but we're still there i mean there's just as kyle was talking about like there's really nothing discretionary to cut there's so few things that we can cut and all of them are so vital. And so I now come back around to my first point, which was Kemp's priorities. And Kemp's, one of his other campaign priorities were tax cuts. And that, in my mind, is the only way that you justify doing something like this right now when the Georgia economy is doing really good and we are not hurting for for money, is that you are trying to justify how you will pay for a tax cut because unlike the federal government we have a requirement from our constitution to stay balanced in our budgeting and so if you cut revenues you have to cut expenses somewhere and so i think they're trying to get ahead of the game on this and really set themselves up to do uh further tax cuts and i think that the recession argument that there we have to find a way to pay for more uh salary increases for teachers argument i think those are sideshows to the main attraction which is the tax cut so yeah, just to clarify a couple things. So first, the governor does point to volatility and revenue collection that signifies some weakness in the economy. And there are other signs in the economy. If you paid attention to the economic press, you've seen things like the inverted yield curve, which is maybe a potential predictor of a recession. There was that attack on Saudi oil fields that may drive up oil prices and drag down consumer spending. And then there are other signs of volatility, primarily caused by the president's actions on trade. Uh, but at the same time that all of those factors are out there. During the week that we're recording on Thursday, the state's labor commissioner said that the state had one of its best employment numbers in August in almost two decades, and that there weren't signs of a, a pending economic downturn affecting the state. And then second, a vote on tax cuts is actually teed up for the 2020 legislative session when the state passed legislation in 2018 conforming the state's tax code to recognize the Republican tax cuts under the Trump administration in Washington, they set up a two-step 
reduction in the state income tax. When the legislation passed in 2018, it reduced the state's top income tax rate from 6% to 5.75. Then the legislation said that in the 2020 legislative session, the legislature would consider a second step reduction to lower that income tax rate again from 5.75 to 5.5. If you tuned in for our interview with Danny Canzo from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute a couple of weeks ago, you might remember that he said that taking that second step reduction would cost the state $550 million in revenue each year. And that uh, doing so, as we've talked about in this, these balanced budget requirements require, would basically precipitate having to pay for those tax cuts with spending cuts. So there is there are concerns over the recession. There are some concerning economic indicators. Uh, but there is this tax cut hanging out there. And it's a political problem for the governor, too, because he ran on tax cuts. And now you have legislation that sets up a vote for those that you would basically need a political reason to get out of taking that vote. And it's an election year. It's a presidential election year. It's going to be in a competitive state on the presidential level and on the state legislative level. And taking a pass on tax cuts when you're a Republican governor, when you have a conservative base, that becomes a political problem for you in motivating your base. And Kemp comes from the conservative wing of the Republican Party. You know, Republicans were sort of mildly frustrated with Governor Perdue's administration, with Governor Deal's administration, and with the poss- with the possibility of a Governor Cagle administration, because these are not lifelong Republic. Well, I think Cagle was, but Deal and Perdue were not lifelong Republicans. They were former Democrats who changed parties. And the grassroots conservative element of the Republican Party for a long time was frustrated with establishment Republicans for not being more aggressive with the state's budget, for not pursuing tax cuts. You know, the tax cut that they did in 2018 was the first cut in the income tax, I think maybe since the 1930s. I mean, it's been a really long time and and conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans did not want to cut the state's income tax for a long time because it's a big revenue generator and it's hard to pay for services otherwise. So that's and it's already pretty low. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, across the board, I mean, you know, we have the income tax, which compared to Tennessee and Florida, those states don't have income taxes, but because of tourism, they have other tax sources. But we also have relatively low corporate taxes. We have relatively low fees across the board. We have cut other sort other forms of taxes and fees so much and pushed all of the decisions related to taxes related to taxes and raising revenue onto local governments, whether it's through SPLOS to pay for education or pay for roads or increases in property taxes to help pay for schools. The legislature has pushed all those decisions off, uh, but they have not attacked the income tax until now. And I think grassroots Republicans wanted to see Governor Kemp do this. Yeah, I think the other thing we're going to see is that we're reaching a point where the cuts that are going to have to be proposed to make Kemp's budget cut dreams come true are going to divide Republicans because these are cuts to some pretty important programs and things that uh, are already not really funded that highly. And so I I just don't think this is going to be an easy fight for uh, Kemp because, I mean, one one of the things I think we're we're seeing that I've been... uh, 
really amazed by is just comparing Kemp's administration to Deal's administration, where, you know, Deal was not always successful with what he wanted to do. Um, unquestionably not. Like, OSD, uh, very huge thing that Deal did and ended up failing among voters. But the thing that I always noticed about Nathan Deal is that he seemed to have the game completely, like, played out. Like, he knew where his opposition was going to come from. He knew how to roll things out to, uh, you know, make it very clear what he was trying to do. And it all seemed very, very organized. And what I think is really uh, just striking about this situation is how caught off guard everyone seems to be. And I I just really wonder what the source of that is. Um, Because to me, this kind of seemed inevitable that Kemp was going to do something like this. Um, And I'm just kind of surprised that he did not like lay the groundwork for it among legislators and the public uh, in the way that it seemed like Deal had always done uh, when he was doing something as as large of this. And so I'm just kind of curious if this is something that people are going to fall in line about uh, or if there's going to be more consternation. Well, I think to some extent there is real disagreement about this within Republican politics on whether or not we have a big bloated wasteful government or whether or not through conservative budgeting, the state budget has been reduced to a lean one where we are only funding vital services. Um, You know, Charlie Harper, a conservative columnist, he has a, column that runs in a few newspapers around the state. He also is a writer for Georgia Poll. He wrote a column back during the Republican gubernatorial primary, where he basically took to task Republicans who were proposing big spending cuts and saying that if we cut a bunch of fat and waste out of the budget, we can use those cuts to pay for the total elimination of the state income tax. Uh, Hunter Hill was running on totally eliminating the state income tax, if I remember correctly. Michael Williams might have been too. Um, I don't think Cagle or Kemp went this far, but you know you can't be in a Republican primary and oppose tax cuts. Um, and he basically took these candidates to task saying, we've had a Republican governance since 2002. We've been through a great recession and a smaller recession in the early 2000s. And every time the budget has been slashed, And people who say that the state has a spending problem really do not understand the state budget and do not understand the conservative budgeting practices adopted by Governors Purdue and Governor Deal. That's coming from a Republican columnist. Um, I think Democrats feel even further beyond where Republicans feel. They feel like we've underfunded key services so much. I mean, it was only 2018 Uh, that we finally started fully funding the state's education formula after almost two decades of not doing that. Uh, We're in a state that still hasn't adopted the Medicaid expansion, which is hurting rural hospitals and rural access to health care and is really at its core just an issue of the state being willing to fund a vital service. So there is this disagreement. The thing that I think, you know, maybe as part of the surprise here is maybe there were some Republicans who didn't necessarily take Governor Kemp seriously when he said he wanted to do this. You know, it's a Republican primary. They're all going to say they want to cut taxes and cut spending. But then when you get to the hard reality of governing, you sort of realize that when you propose cuts like these, you're proposing cuts to vital services. 
and they are things that are going to be harmful to real people, including some people who sort of fit the Republican demographic. So you've already seen some Republican pushback in the legislature. Uh, Sharon Cooper, who co-chaired a study committee on maternal mortality, she told Georgia Recorder that the cuts to the maternal mortality grant were not written in stone yet, that there's a possibility that it could change, and she would be working to get that program put back in. And then uh, State Representative Sam Watson and State Representative Rick Jaspers, they're two co-chairs of the House Rural Development Council, and they were critical of the cuts to agricultural services, basically saying that the programs run by the University of Georgia and the Board of Regents are what has helped farmers get through tough times, and that the organization's that were subject to these cuts were really lean organizations and that were critical to standing up the state's agriculture industry, the largest industry in the state, and one that has a lot of friends in the legislature given how rural of a state we are, particularly with the lay, the way legislative districts are divided up. So guys, are there any other revenue options on the table and how do we think those will fare? So the biggest revenue option that's sort of hanging out there and the one that has sort of come back to life as the discussion of these budget cuts has brewed is the option of uh, allowing casino gambling in the state of Georgia and not just casino gambling, but allowing other forms of gambling that aren't necessarily casinos. Um, This is something that Governor Kemp has opposed, uh, but because the way the casino question works is to make casino gambling legal in the state, you would have to pass a constitutional amendment to do that. Passing a constitutional amendment requires a two-thirds vote in the legislature, and you also override a gubernatorial veto with two-thirds of a vote in the legislature. So Kemp has basically recognized political reality and said, if a constitutional amendment gets two-thirds vote, they're going to overrule my veto, so I'm not going to stand in the way. But that would precipitate a referendum, and then the voters would get the final say on that. There are other forms of gambling, like sports gambling, that's been recently opened up by a Supreme Court decision. I don't think that requires a constitutional amendment. So I think that question is a little bit different than the casino one. And that is certainly one where Kemp could uh, use his influence if he wants to, to block that. Um, But I think there is sort of a mix of opinions on both sides of the aisle as it relates to casino gambling. When we talk to the Democratic leader, Bob Trammell, he sort of argued out both sides of the question for us, as he said about, as he talked about how he and his caucus would consider that. So I think that's a real wild card in the next legislative session. But because we are talking about spending cuts, I think that that discussion around casino gambling is going to get a lot more play next year than it did this past session. Yeah, I feel like you know, casino gambling always comes up. <laughs> it's always there lurking, just waiting for some lobbyist to drop something to the AJC so that we talk about it again. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, just with everything we've already covered and how there, you know, the Republican ideology really limits the ways that we can bring more money into uh, you know, the the conversation. I won't be surprised if casino gambling and all the other types of gambling pop up again. What I will be really curious about is if the deep and honestly held moral reservations about casino gambling will quickly fade away and, you know, we open up uh, all, all the gambling to various general, you know, various other uh, funding rather than just doing uh, more to the Hope Scholarship and pre-K uh, that the, you know, 
gambling funds from the lottery currently uh, go towards. Because right now, that's where the funds go to. Uh, and I, I'll be curious if, you know, we unmoor those those objections and let it go, you know, straight to the general fund or somewhere else. I mean, if they have to fill holes in the budget, there's going to be a lot of pressure to do that. But the point is, Cal, they don't have to. This is a choice. <laughs> they are choosing to do this. I think that's the most important thing uh, that we really need to, you know, continue to talk about is if if we go down this route, you know, Kemp, Kemp is asking the legislature to do this. And he's asking the agencies to do it. Um, you know, he has a little more control over what he asked the agencies to do, uh, which, you know, he should. He, he's the governor. But still, uh, on, you know, on the legislator front, like they have a choice if they want to do these cuts or not. And, you know, we have a lot of great examples across the country like Kansas about what can happen when you make decisions like this. So the old maxim about budgeting is don't tell me your priorities, show me your budget and I'll tell you what you care about. That's fair. As one of my old directors used to say when he didn't agree with a stage direction we decided to do, it's a choice. And with that, we choose to move on to our next topic. (laughs) Right. So last week, John Ossoff confirmed prior speculation by entering the race for the U.S. Senate in 2020. But to the surprise of some, he entered the race with the endorsement of longtime civil rights icon and Georgia congressman John Lewis. On top of Ossoff's entry into the race, Governor Kemp put out an application Tuesday to apply to be appointed to Johnny Isaacson's Senate seat. And we have an exclusive on a candidate who may enter the race. So, Luke, do you want to kick us off with an overview on that? Yeah, I think the, you know, least surprising thing in in politics and a very surprising error was that John Ossoff is running for the U.S. Senate. I think it's slightly surprising that he's running for the Purdue seat, but, you know, probably not. Uh, Ossoff was really, I feel like, besides Teresa Tomlinson, the first name that was thrown out in this race. Uh, So, like, we knew he was going to run against Purdue for a really long time. He's been working on it. For a really long time, Megan, you and I know he was at the last Young Democrats of Georgia convention. He he's just around. Ossoff's around. It was obvious he was going to run for something, and this was the most we obvious. Have pictures thing. to prove it. That's right. We do have pictures to prove it. And you know, it's like it was obvious he was going to do this. So I am unshocked. Uh, I agree that I am surprised that he has John Lewis's, um, you know, endorsement. But you know, like the more I think about it, the less I'm surprised. And the primary reason about that is that you know i feel like we overthink things sometimes and uh unfortunately sometimes politics can be really really simple and i think for a lot of people like john ossoff is the only name they know like even though the sarah riggs amico ran statewide last year like the amount of attention and news articles and just you know eyeballs on stories about sarah riggs amico do not even come close or compare to the attention that John Ossoff has gotten already. And the fact is, he raised a lot more money than many candidates for many very competitive races. Uh, you know, he's already ran the most expensive house race in history. And so with that being said, like, John Ossoff can raise a ton of money, and he's going to again. I am sure he's already raised millions of dollars. And with that being said, I mean, I don't know if the other candidates who are running are going to be able to compete with him because Georgia is a huge state. Like, people underestimate it. You can run your Atlanta-only campaign, and sometimes you'll survive a primary, but, I mean, Georgia's just huge. And if Ossoff is going to be able to raise money in the same way that he did in, uh, you know, the special election, I think it's going to be a really similar game for him because he 
ran in a contested primary and was kind of the anointed person, but not really. And he was able to knock out, you know, almost wing it outright. So I think um, it would be easy to underestimate him with just how crazy things have been. His fundamentals are good. Do we really think that his fundraising ability is like the end-all be-all in this race? So, you know, a little bit about Ossoff's background, if you're, I guess, one of the few people who lived under a rock all of 2017 and has no idea who he is. I wish he, I had. He he ran <laughs> in the most expensive congressional race in the history of Congress, and he raised a boatload of money. But that race was the race to replace Tom Price in Congress when Tom Price was appointed into the Trump administration. And it was the first special election in the Trump era. So all of that pent-up political frustration, political anger at the election of Donald Trump was just like suddenly unleashed on Georgia's sixth congressional district during a jungle primary and a runoff in early 2017. And I just like, there is no other comparable political environment that I can think of in recent memory to that congressional race. I mean, maybe the only one was the replacement of Ted Kennedy where Massachusetts elected a Republican Senator uh, in Scott Brown to replace longtime liberal lion Ted Kennedy. And even in that race where all of that political energy was dumped into Georgia's sixth congressional district, Ossoff did not win. He raised a boatload of money, but he did not win. So do we think that the ability to raise money and seemingly the name ID he did build by raising and then burning all that money in the congressional race in the special election. Do we really think that gives him a big leg up in this primary? I I do. And, you know, just this is anecdotally, of course, but, you know, I tend to like roam around people who are likely Democratic primary voters. Basically everyone like from the Cobb County uh, metro Atlanta area from the basically everyone from the 6th district that I remember working on his campaign have endorsed him like and, and just like the activisty type people the people who like worked really hard on his campaign have already endorsed him I think the other thing that gives him a huge leg up is that Teresa Tomlinson who's someone who I really looked forward to in running in this race had a really disappointing first fundraising disclosure and I, I just think that really shook the confidence of a lot of people, including me, uh, and her ability to win this primary. Uh, and so I, I just think that really, really hurt her. And like I said, Georgia's a huge state. And so it's it's not just money. It's not just like, oh, he has, you know, two, three million dollars. And so he wins. No, but he will spend that money. <laughs> he will spend that money in advertising. He'll spend that money on field offices. He will spend that money in ways that will make him be able to compete better with these other people. And the reason why I'm very confident that he will raise money is people underestimate how valuable it is to have an email list that you know will give you money because they gave you money before. And sure, like maybe people won't give him $100 like they did last time. Maybe they'll give him 25 But, you know, <laughs> he'll still get a ton of money if he can get a good bit of those people to recommit and spend money on him. And, you know, the yeah, John Ossoff lost, but I feel like he didn't do anything that made people not like him if they liked him before. And sure, he was an avatar for people's frustrations with Trump, and now there's so many other choices for that. But I, I just don't think all of those people are just going to disappear because Ossoff's 
uh, context, you know, has changed. I feel I feel like he's still going to benefit from that. It won't be as strong, but he's still going to benefit from that. And then the last thing uh, I will point to is that uh, looking at 2018, we had some really good-looking candidates on paper. We had people with a lot of experience. We had people who had been activists for a long time or in issue areas for a long time. And a lot of them got beat by political newcomers who were African-American women, uh, you know, the state senate <laughs> minority leader, Steve Henson almost lost to someone who basically didn't campaign, who was just a different name on the ballot. And I think... The truth of the matter is, is that we really wish that people paid attention to these primaries as much as we do, but the fact is that they don't, like, people don't. They aren't paying that close attention. And so the fact that John Ossoff is a name that pretty much if you are in the state of Georgia or the United States of America, you kind of know who he is, and you're like, oh yeah, I've heard of that guy. I think that, oh yeah, I know who that is effect will boost him significantly. So Kyle, did you want to talk about Ossoff's early positions? Yeah, and I, I think this gets to a little bit more of my skepticism, you know, to to see Ossoff sort of getting the enthusiasm from the activist base and the Democratic Party, particularly ones that are active in electoral politics. I mean, he has in the early days of his campaign, he came out in support of uh, reparation study legislation that has been introduced by Senator Cory Booker, who's running for president. And he told the media that there is a debt unpaid on this issue, and that he thinks it's a very, very difficult question for how to pay for it. But Ossoff is not alone in his support for that legislation. Both Ted Terry and Teresa Tomlinson support this House resolution uh, that is similar to Booker's legislation. Um, Ossoff kind of took what to me looks like a bit of a mushy middle ground on impeachment and one that doesn't necessarily strike me as energizing to the activist community. He he basically said that the House Democrats should not rule out impeachment on political grounds, um, but that he would weigh the evidence against the president and against the charges laid out against him on all the merits. There is a lot of people in activist Democratic politics, particularly people outside of Georgia who I pay attention to. I mean, this is a different lens, so maybe this is ex- explains why, who think that what is available in the public domain already the Mueller report, the uh, Stormy Daniels payments and Trump's lying about those, all of the issues around corruption, around Trump's hotels, and you know this new story that's emerging of uh, U.S. military officials staying at Trump's hotels, taking long layovers to stay there um, in what is viewed as something that boosts the president's bottom line. A lot of the activist community thinks that those that that is the damning evidence you need for impeachment and that Democrats should be full steam ahead on impeachment, that the the time for discussion and debate over it is over. The time for action is now. Um, The other position that stood out to me that he took early in this race was he seemed unsure about a proposal of gun buybacks. Um, If you listened to last week's Democratic debate, you heard Beto O'Rourke say, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15 and your AK-47. Uh, John Ossoff did not say, hell yes, we're going to take your guns. Um, He did say that he supported strict licenses for all semi-automatic weapons, universal background checks, and he thinks assault weapons shouldn't be available to the general public. So he is a step to the left of 
the House Democratic Caucus in the Congress, who recently passed up an opportunity to pass an assault weapons ban um, over political considerations, basically. But he is not in the same place of, hell yeah, we're going to take your AK-47 and your AR-15. So I don't, I don't know. These strike me as like somewhat calculating positions that activists don't really love, uh, but they are uh, decidedly progressive for a, a Georgia statewide candidate. Well, and I think that's the main thing that you just said. Like, this is these are still very progressive positions. Like, if Jason Carter or Michelle Nunn had held these positions in 2014, it would have lit, like, people's hairs on fire. <laughs> like, like, these are still incredibly progressive positions. And I just think, based off what we have seen from the other candidates, I don't have faith in their campaigns right now to get more attention than he is. Because even if they hold positions that people in the Democratic base are more excited about, they're not going to hear about them unless they're watching the, you know, the GPB debates, the one time where these candidates will probably be in the same place and directly conflict, you know, have a conflict with each other. The other thing I think is going to complicate this race significantly is that there's just going to be a lot of attention on the other race as well, even though the uh, votes won't, actually happen at the same time um and i just yeah i don't know i i just haven't seen the other three candidates break through yet and maybe i'm just underestimating them and uh i feel like you know in a, in a weird way if they are able to break through and beat us off then that is a really good sign for their campaign. They're obviously doing something right because Ossoff is in a good position to win this thing just because of uh, the advantages that he has coming into it. Um, I just don't feel like those positions are going to kill him with Democratic activists for two reasons. One, the, uh, as I hinted to in the, you know, 2018 primaries, like the Democratic base is not just like my friends who look like me in Athens, the white liberals, (laughs) There are a ton of African Americans who vote um, in the Georgia primary. They make up the majority of the Georgia primary. And, uh, you know, looking to the presidential race and looking at polling for centuries, you know, the people in the states, <laughs> you know, where Democrats don't win very often and in communities that feel like they aren't winning. They tend to vote for the people they think can win. And out of the four choices we have uh, right now, I feel like Ossoff is the one people think might be able to win because while he didn't win in 2017, he got damn close. I would just say that, you know, another candidate that got damn close to winning was Sarah Riggs Amico, and she got damn close to winning in a statewide race. So on, on top of that, when you look at Teresa Tomlinson, she's somebody who has a profile yeah, outside of Metro Yeah, Teresa Tomlinson has won before. <laughs> she has won. Ted Terry has won, although they both won in decidedly smaller races. And this is not me log rolling for any of the other three in this race. But I think to me, to me, I just feel like there's a lot that is TBD. The thing that I was particularly struck by when talking with Sarah Riggs Amico was she had very clear, very coherent criticisms of Senator Perdue and his tenure in the Senate, his uh, bowing down basically to uh, President Trump. They were so clear. It was as if she had been reading my Twitter feed for the last six months because they're all the criticisms that I share. But she might have. I think that there's I I think that there is a lot 
that is TBD. Um, and I'm looking forward to how it develops, but I just, I think Democrats have four decently strong candidates who have strengths in some areas, weaknesses in other areas. Um, but I think that external events might actually shape the way that this primary plays out. And I think that in a lot of ways that stuff is hard to predict. So let's talk about the other Senate race. Um, or the also other hard Senate to predict. Seat, right. The other Senate seat, rather. Um, Luke, what are your initial reactions to the uh, the the rumor that Governor Kemp put out an application? Or is that more than a rumor? Oh, that that's more than a rumor. There's an actual application. You can go on to Governor Kemp's website and you can apply to be the next senator of the United States from Georgia. Uh, and, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, there are some constitutional requirements. I'm 27, so I cannot apply to be the next senator from the United States, from Georgia to the United States Senate, uh, which is a real shame. I'm not a Georgia resident, so I can't apply to be the next U.S. Senator from Georgia. Um, I what's your excuse, Megan? <laughs> yeah, what's your excuse? Uh, I have none. I should apply. <laughs> apply. Applying now. Uh, you know, Kim did say he will take every application seriously. So, you know, Megan, you could be our next U.S. Senator. And this uh, is our <laughs> Peach Pot exclusive, by the way. That's right. Yeah, Megan, this is what we teased. <laughs> yeah, Me- Megan Payne, 2020. Um, I like no. it. No pain, no gain. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, um, <laughs> moving past that painful no, pun. No, I, I think that's uh, the Get beginning painful, of the campaign. Painful pun. Uh, painful uh, pun. Yes, uh, the beginning of the pain campaign. Uh, uh, campaign, get it? Yeah, ha yeah. Oh, God, this is awful. Kyle, you're going to have to cut a lot of this. But anyway. No, it's all no we're not. In. No, it it's all, all stays staying. in. It all stays. And, all right. This is staying in, too. Can't you imagine Great. that on a bumper sticker, though? No pain, no yeah. gain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no pain, no gain. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've been saying I'm going to run on that someday. I won student council with that. It well, worked great. So you've officially won more elections than John Ossoff. <laughs> oh. Ooh, burn. Sick burn. Deep might cut. To, might have to cut that one out. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway. Yeah, so I don't really think Kemp creating an application changes anything about this. Uh, They are claiming it's for transparency reasons, so I imagine he's going to make it public uh, who applies at some point. Um, I think the same people who he would be considering are the same people who would apply. I really don't think it's going to... Uh, affect anyone like I don't think anyone is going to be like well I really wanted to be U.S. Senator but I have to put my name and resume online (laughs) and so now I don't want to be so I kind of feel like the people who we've been talking about like Doug Collins or Chris Carr or random Kemp person who Kemp knows who he thinks would be good at this like you know the new commissioner of insurance who is a police chief that no one had ever heard about (laughs) before Kemp made him insurance commissioner insurance commissioner Um, you know I, I, I just think this is uh, it's fine. It's great, actually. I, I actually kind of like it, to be honest. Uh, I, I like that Kemp did this just because it is transparent. It honestly is. Um, and I think making people who are interested in it, like, have to do the kind of embarrassing thing, I guess, of, like, saying that you won it, I kind of like it. I, I, I have to be completely honest. I do. Um, so with that, though, I don't think, like, it's going to actually change who he picks. And I think what the really interesting thing to watch will be if any Democrats apply, uh, cause that might be a sign of, of who runs. But what I've really been shocked about with this race is how there has been like no news. Um, 
And what that makes me think is happening is there's a lot of secret meetings going on, a lot of Council of Elrons, uh, because... Wait, 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 wait. Mm. Did you just Council of Elrond this? I did. I love it. I did do that, okay. because that's what it's, it's a secret meeting. Please um, proceed. What does that but mean? Council of Elrond? Lord of the Rings? Oh. When they met yeah. about the one ring one and what they're going to do about it? does not simply pick a singet candidate. This is a very meme episode. We have all of this of is staying in too. Anyway, um, back to my point though. Uh, I really think Democrats have a good opportunity in this race because it's pretty rare that a two like two Senate seats that are up for the same time. One, that's a rare situation, but it's even rarer uh, that they go in different directions. I think like the last time it happened was like in the fifties or sixties. It's been a really long time. Um, so this is a two for one special basically in Georgia that, you know, if you can win these second seats, you, well, I probably actually a three for one cause you probably get the electoral college, uh, votes from Georgia and you probably get the two Senate seats if you win. Um, so I think probably what's happening are a lot of conversations about who should run on the democratic side. There's been a lot of names thrown out. I think the ones that I would mention as the most plausible just based off of what I've heard and the people I've been talking to is, uh, retro 2014, Michelle Nunn. She obviously wanted to be a Senator from Georgia. Uh, she, you know, ran in a far less great democratic year and she ran a campaign that I feel like was uh, far more conservative than she would run today. So that would be interesting though. You know, as much as I like Michelle Nung, I worked for her and like met with her several times and she's great. And I really like her. I feel like, you know, maybe she's too old school, uh, not of the progressive meld that we need, but you know, maybe, maybe her campaign would be different with how the country's changing, how Georgia's changed, uh, in the, you know, four, six years since, um, the other name that I, am kind of shocked about, but makes a lot of sense. The more you think about it is Lucy McBath. She ran a pretty great race, beat Karen Handel. Uh, it'd be kind of ironic if uh, Kemp appoints Karen Handel and then Lucy McBath runs against her. <laughs> oh, that would be hilarious. But anyway, um, you know, and the logic there makes a lot of sense. Uh, she is a figure that has some national attention. She's an African-American woman, definitely could excite the uh, base and excite uh, people who want to win since she's already proving herself that she can win. I'll just pause to say that between the time we recorded and the time that we put this out, Lucy McBath decided not to contest that Senate seat. And then the last name I keep hearing a lot is Michael Thurman, who is the current CEO of DeKalb uh, and was actually a statewide elected uh, back in the day where Democrats could win statewide elections. And I actually think he was the last Democrat who was elected because I think he held on for a little bit longer um, than other Democrats when the uh, state went Republican, but that is just from memory. So hopefully I'm right about that. Uh, but the reason why this conversation is happening is because Stacey Abrams is not running. And I think if she had changed her mind with this unique circumstance popping up and decided to run, I think she would very easily cleared the field and she would, you know, be the only Democrat who runs. But I think because there's such uncertainty about like who Kemp's going to appoint, and because Democrats have no clear person to run, I won't be surprised if there's two Michelle Nudd, Lucy McBath, Michael Thurman caliber Democrat candidates in this jungle primary. Um, but who knows? Uh, it's really unpredictable because uh, Georgia Democrats sometimes surprises us with uh, how organized they can be. 
I think Stacey Abrams would have cleared the field. I mean, it's not just speculation that there has been meetings between uh, Democratic officials at the national level, the campaign officials who are interested in this race potentially being, I mean, it really could be the race that decides the U.S. Senate in a runoff in January, in January. of 2020, of 2021, I mean. Um, but then it, there have been meetings between those officials and state Democratic officials and some of the candidates who are rumored to be considering that race, it has been confirmed that they were at uh, some of these meetings. I think Jen Jordan was at this meeting, if I'm remembering correctly. So, you know, there is interest in Democrats coalescing around one or at the very maximum two candidates to run in that jungle primary. They really, I think, uh, from a strategic perspective, should decide on one because the very best chance that Democrats have to win that to win that Senate seat in November of 2020 is to win it outright without a runoff because Democrats have not had a good record in runoffs, motivating their people to come out and vote for a second round election after most of the political attention has shifted in another direction or people's attention has shifted away from politics. And that's why I'm particularly intrigued by Lucy McBath running for that seat uh, Raphael Warnock is another name I would put in there because the Purdue seat doesn't currently have an African-American Democrat in that primary. And you could see sort of a nice balancing of the Democratic coalition with sort of a young, progressive, probably white candidate challenging Purdue in that seat. And then an African-American Democrat who has establishment backing being the anointed candidate in the Isaacson seat in that jungle primary. Um, so that's, I think, the, the structure of the way in which it would play out best for Democrats. And yeah, like you said, Luke, I've heard uh, people almost having the expectation that Democrats would manage this in a way that state party Republicans are never able to manage their primaries and in the fiasco that those things always turn into. Um, but I don't know, you know, ambition can get the best of people. Um, and we'll see, you know, this is a wide open political environment. So we'll see how it shakes out. Is, is all that right. all, folks? Anything else you want to say on that? Uh, I think that's oh. all for me. Yeah, I don't think I got anything. What do I say to close this shit out? I can't even remember. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.